Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. I am very excited to have a special guest with me today. She is the professor of sociology at NKU and the founder and director of the MCRC project. I have Joan Ferrante with me. Hi, Joan. Hi. How are nice you? I'm good. I know. I'm so excited about this conversation. <laughs> I am too. So, I'm going to start with you the way I do all my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? Well, I guess in a, if I take a lifelong look at my labor of love, uh, I think it has to do with the way I communicate information as a teacher. I've always been a teacher or a professor that I want to communicate information so that the masses understand what, what we have to say. I, I've always been bothered from from when I was a student by how much the professors and teachers talked over the heads of the students. At least my experience was that way. Mm -hmm. And I've made it really my mission in life that whatever I do, it has, I run it by all kinds of people. And I actually learn a lot about what I need to say to make it make sense or what I need to show or images or something. Uh, So I would say that's my overall mission in life is that I don't want students saying, I can't figure out what the professor's saying <laughs> I, you know, or the teacher's saying to me. Uh, so that's my mission, my labor of love, I think. I love that. And I've had some of those. <laughs> I, I actually get really annoyed when I go like, I get it, but why'd you like, <laughs> you didn't have to say it that way. There are so many yes. more plain ways. Right. And yes. so I, I really can appreciate just in general, but specifically in my relationship with you, your desire and how much uh, effort, energy, time, and resources you put into making these kind of abstract and sometimes difficult concepts and conversations tangible for people all across the world to be able to understand and engage in some of these conversations in that level. So I appreciate that. I also love how you are really doing something that I consider, not that you're the only person who tries to do that, but you are really shifting power dynamics within academia. Mm -hmm. You know, in some regards, that's kind of the crowning jewel of academia, right? Restricting access based on nuanced language and communication that can leave some people out very systemically. Mm -hmm. And what you're actively doing in your role is kind of taking down that barrier to invite so many different voices and ears into the process. And it is just, it's phenomenal work. And I really, really appreciate you know, that you're doing that. Yep. Thank you. I mean, I I think that academics, I'm thinking at the college level here, I I don't think they think they're doing that. I think they think they're being really clear, just like I think I'm being really clear. Mm -hmm. So I ask somebody, 
you know, and I get feedback on what I'm saying and I realize how clear I wasn't all that clear and I love being clear, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I become better really understanding what people aren't hearing me say that I wanted them to hear. Yeah, that's good. And, that, and that's an excellent point. While the system of academia, I think, does create those barriers, I don't necessarily think it, like you said, it's the intention of each individual um, instructor, professor. Um, and, and I will be true, like as you were talking about that, I, there are times when I am so not clear. And I really think that I, <laughs> I'm super clear. And yeah. it, it's like when people just look at me and they're like, I, what? And I was just yeah. like, oh, okay, let me translate that more. And so it is the humility that I love that you say, I thought I was clear until I, I recognized what people weren't hearing. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's something, man, if people could get that, Right. We spend so much time focusing on making sure people are getting what we're saying, I think, as a, as a generalized culture, but mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's what they're not hearing. Yes. You know, sometimes it's not even the misinterpretation. It's the, it's the thing that is the void that mm -hmm. can lead to so much distance between people. And, yes. and so moving into that void, oh, that's so powerful. So, um, so you talked a little bit about like previous experiences that you didn't enjoy. And so that kind of seeded this in you, but can you identify like when you realized this was a passion or labor of love or what kind of really sparked you to move in this direction? Well, I think it's, I can, I can think of examples as far back as a second grade, but I think uh, more recent when I was in college, I just remember sitting in classes and just, I'm not, I realized I was kind of, a, I'm a smart person. I mean, I am an intelligent person, but I didn't understand about 90% of what the teachers were saying. And it would be things like the industrial revolution. You know, they, they, they just act like you knew what it was. And, and most people have a sense like, oh, it has to do with factories. But you don't think of the industrial revolution as something that was global, that the uh, core economies, the European economies, you know, colonized all the other countries in the world, made country. They made the countries in the world and colonized them. You don't think of it as that big a thing. So when, no, but professors, you know, just thought you would know what the Industrial Revolution was. So if you didn't get that core idea about it, you didn't follow anything else they said because you were just thinking factories. You're going, what's the big deal about factories? You know, <laughs> it's just, I would just sit there and I would think, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm just not following this. So I have this cute little example where, you know, when students sometimes don't follow things, they might raise their hand and maybe they mishear the professor and they didn't hear industrial revolution. They heard dusty revolution <laughs> and they go, what's the dusty revolution? And then they're humiliated, uh -huh. you know, because they say dusty revolution. And uh, I find that happens so much that Students are afraid to raise their hand and they do misspeak and they haven't heard the word before. And, and, and then we humiliate them or laugh at them or act like they're stupid just mm -hmm. because they just haven't heard the word, you know, or they haven't heard the concept. So I just always remember as a professor, I started teaching pretty early at 23 college because you only need 18 hours graduate, you know, work to do that. But always I thought I'm going to be clear on what things are. I'm going to say where, where an ocean is or where, a, you know, what is the industrial revolution? Let's stop a minute and talk about that instead of just throwing it out there 
you know, for, for people to try to figure out what it is you're talking about. Mm. John, I appreciate that so much. And it translates across so many different demographics. I think of how many people uh, in a work environment are assumed to just know how to do their job. This particularly happens when a person receives a promotion because they're good at their job. And then people say, well, naturally you should then be the supervisor or the manager over this, but then they don't teach them how to be supervisors or managers. There's just this, an assumption that, you know, with the title change, you absorb through osmosis, the skills Mm -hmm. needed to do it well, not true. So I appreciate that. Can you talk to us a little bit about why sociology? Well, I, I think it has to do with, uh, my interest in social construction of reality. And I always was, I think I was always interested in that, even though I didn't have that language, you know, to say, oh, you're thinking social construction of reality here. Uh, But when I was um, pretty young, about 10 10 or 12 years old, I was raised Catholic and the Catholic religion overnight changed its rules. And it sent me into just into depression. Because things that I had done, you know, religiously, put it that mm-hmm. way, suddenly they didn't matter anymore. Like you didn't have to, uh, I don't know, fast before you took communion. You used to have to fast like 24 hours. Now you could just go take it. Now that sounds like a small thing, but that, that upset my world. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how can you change something like that? And I think having that experience that my world could change overnight, something I believed in so, so hard. I think that made me open to the construction of reality, that reality has real consequences, but people do create it. And that's, then sociology is a discipline that looks at those kinds of things. And so I think I was drawn to that discipline um, for that reason. And um, I must, when I, my teaching all does center around construction of reality and the social construction and how powerful that all is. So fascinating. Um, I don't know that I've ever used those words, but I'm like, yeah, Mm -hmm. Uh uh-huh. And now from go sociology, psychology, I am definitely the micro level. I am very interested in the social construction of reality for individuals and families, Mm -hmm. you know, and how that's come to be and how trauma influences our perception of reality and what it does to the body. And, but I've been so um, enthralled with taking a step back through working with you and looking at the macro level you know, which is just not something that I naturally do. It's neither good nor bad. It just is. But when we look kind of on these more global perspectives, it's so fascinating. And I, I love how our work can so intertwine and how you can help me see this bigger picture. And I can kind of come in and, and drill into something very specific and individual that's been really great. So please share with my listeners how your labor of love is showing up in the present. Um, I know you are a professor and so you still teach sociology. So very being clear with your students and things like that, but in what other ways is it showing up? I, my most current way is the, um, the morning, the creation of racial categories project. And we call that the MCRC project. And it is um, a look at 
how race was constructed in the United States, how the racial categories came to be, and how we came to believe in them and organize our lives and societies around them. And um, when you know how racial categories were created, uh, then race, I'm not going to say it doesn't disappear. What it mean, what happens is that you realize the divisions are artificial. They have had tragic consequences and your relationship with people who appear different race than yourself um, comes into, I want, I want to say the word, well, it makes me mourn. You know, I, that's why it's called the mourning, the creation of racial categories, because people tend to see in the United States, you know, because that's the, that's the racial system we look at, tend to see race as something that's biological. Like I can just look at somebody and see their race and they don't look at it as something and have never been taught to look at it as something that was constructed, that divided to make it. We had to divide biologically related people and separate them from one another in the most sorrowful to the most callous of ways. And when we understand that we pulled apart fathers and sons and uncles and nephews from nephews and nieces and grandparents from grandchildren to live in different spaces and to live different lives, then the power of human construction over our lives, you know, becomes just so evident. that you resist, you know, you, you resist and you, and you present yourself to people who appear different race than you as in a, in a different way. Once you know that it's just something happens to the relationships that you have with people who appear different races, if that makes sense. It made sense to me. (laughs) I, I love this work. Um, so how, you know, as an extension of, you know, kind of how did this come to be? I hear that you have this um, this interest and always have had this interest in the social constructs and in reality, but kind of why race? Is there, is there, a, is there an introduction? Is there something that happened or just a curiosity that arose? Because what I want to share with people is at this point, what are we almost 25 years into this project? It may not have had this name, or this funding source or the documentaries yet, but this is a life's work mm-hmm. for you. Two and a half decades to, yes. to dedicate so much to this. How, how did that come to be? Well, you know, I could, I could do so many reasons or, uh, you know, or incidents in my life that I think affected my thinking about race, but I'll, I'll go with, uh, you know, one or so examples. I think that um, one event that affected me, it, it occurred maybe 25 years ago. Uh, I was just starting to think about race. I'd written a book called with Prince Brown Jr. called The Construction of Race in the United States. And we were on a local television station. My mother was watching. And when I came home, uh, she said, hmm, she goes, that's really interesting. Did you know your grandfather had three sisters that couldn't pass into the white race? And she didn't say the words white race. She just said couldn't pass. And my mother was a very uh, private person. And this may sound odd, but when she said that to me, I didn't ask her another question. We just sat there. We didn't discuss it at all, but I registered it. In my mind, I was saying, mother, 
this has been of my life's work, my life's interest. And you've never said this to me before. Mm. And I guess she felt safe, you know, for some reason saying it after she'd, she'd heard us on, on uh, television, but then it made me reflect too on my childhood and that I always wondered why I didn't know my grandma, my grandfather's sisters. And I can remember being like six and seven and going, in my head, family's so important. Why don't I know about them? Where are they? And, but I never ask anybody. Mm. I never asked the question because I knew somehow you felt this is not a question I can ask how you do that at six. But I think everybody does that. All six-year-olds do that. They, they know not to ask questions. Uh, later, I read W.E.B. Du Bois, who has a white appearing father and a black appearing mother very famous uh, black sociologist, black classified sociologist. We always label sociologists by race, which is also a pattern of, of uh, the past. Uh, I read his biography and he wrote that he, he always wanted to ask his mother about his father, but he knew it made her too sad. So he never brought him up. So his whole life, he didn't bring up his white appearing father to his black classified, black appearing mother uh, to talk about. And I think that that, that that depth of thinking that I did when I was very young, you know, is coming out in the construction of race, even before I knew the passing story and has, has come out in the morning, the creation of racial categories project. Um, so that's, that's one example that I can give that I think has affected how I think uh, why race is such a passion for me. Yeah, such a powerful story. And you're absolutely right. As children, we are so intuitive because our survival is dependent upon our caregivers. And so Mm -hmm. as children, very early, we learn how to appease, how to not upset, how to um, um, please our, our parents, our caregivers, because our survival is literally dependent on it. And so it makes sense that as a child, you have that inquiry, but then there's something that pulls you back and doesn't allow the question to come forward or things like that, because we are intuiting and we have mirror neurons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we can feel what another person is feeling without guessing at it or, or really, you know, wondering, we can start to feel that. And so it totally makes sense that, you know, as a young, as a young child, being curious about something, but also just having this intuitive knowing that, I, I'm not going to ask that. I'm not going to say that. And so, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, so now I really want to just talk a little bit more about the morning, the creations of racial categories project. And, you know, I've been thinking, which way do you want to go? I think I want to start by just kind of sharing our two versions of the story of how we met, how I Mm -hmm. got involved with the project, and then we can talk more about it. So from my perspective, you know, it's very clear. Honestly, what's not clear is the year. So was it 2018? I'm pretty sure it was. I think it was 2017, December of 2017. Okay. Yep. And so, yeah, yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. So almost three years now. So I um, remember there was an, um, a Facebook event that I didn't actually see, but a friend of mine on Facebook posted it. And it was Morning the Creations of Racial Categories. And it was this event that was going to be taking place um, at the Freedom Center, the Underground Railroad. 
And I was like, oh, that's intriguing. <laughs> you know, it, it piqued my interest, but no more than anything else piques my interest, which mm -hmm. to be fair, it's the winter in the Midwest and I'm not going nowhere. So, you know, it's like, okay. But there was something about it. I kept coming back to it. And my friend, somehow we connected and she said she was going and I said, mm, all right, maybe I'll go. Do you want to ride together? And so she was like, yeah, we'll meet here and we'll, we'll drive together. And as I left home to go, I, I, I get ready to go outside and it is like snowing. And I'm like, <laughs> it was a Saturday, which my weekends were precious, you know, mm -hmm. and I just finished grad school. Right. So I'm like tired. I got twins. I'm not going anywhere. But as soon as I was like, I don't want to go, I have this thing that it's like, I probably need to go. So I went and it was a viewing of a documentary and the documentary was so, I don't know. It was, it was, um, I don't know that I have a word. It was very compelling and it was thought provoking. There were moments when I cried, these quiet tears and watching and my mind is just absorbing all of this. And it's about racial categories and how they were developed and instituted and how families were separated. And my friend and I were sitting here and, you know, it, it was really good. It comes to the end and there's a question answer portion. Now on one, one thing to note is that my friend that we rode together was supposed to have guests coming in from out of town. So mm -hmm. there was, we wouldn't be able to stay too long, but we were able to stay for a portion of the question and answer. And what people don't know about me is I make the assumption that if a microphone is present, I'm going to be saying something, <laughs> not because of, you know, like, oh me, no, I just, there is this thing, right? Like I, I have this way of communicating that's effective and all this stuff, but I didn't get anything, you know, like it was very moving, but there was nothing because I don't talk just to hear myself talk. Mm -hmm. I really don't. Uh -huh. So I didn't say anything. Well, what happened was there were two couples sitting in front of me and they were both older white classified couples. Okay. Probably in their uh, late sixties, early seventies. And I watched one of them like pull out their phone. They were still, they were like Googling. It was just this thing. And I'm looking at the dynamic because I was pretty high in the auditorium. So I could see a lot of people. And I was so curious. I had a method of reflection and exploration that I could leave that space and take what I had learned and reflect upon it and, and move forward in my life. Mm -hmm. I wasn't confident that everyone in the audience could do the same. Mm -hmm. So I remember saying, mm, that's a good question. Not a necessarily a question for me, but a question for other audience members, um, which was simply, if someone leaves here today and get home and realize, wait a minute, there is something to mourn. What's the next step? What, what do you want them to do? And that question was aimed, there was a whole panel, you know, um, and, and the, the question was asked, and then I'm going to turn it over to your version of the story at this point, um, because that's when you made this statement that was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I just said, I remember looking up you at the very last row in my memory, and I said, you and I need to talk. <laughs> so I said, so I didn't know if, know if you would come down and talk to me after it was over or not. I did not say that to other audience members at all. Yeah. So it wasn't like I say to everybody that says something to me, like, let's talk afterward. 
I said, we really need to talk. Yeah. It and, was just uh, this moment. Right. And she's like, yes. you, I, I, I need you, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, yes. to talk to you. Yes. And I just remember being yes. like, Oh, okay. Right. And she hadn't said it to anyone else. And I'm still now stuck between this very um, compelling invitation that I don't even know what that means. Uh, and yeah. my friend who has to go receive yes. her dinner guests. And I remember someone walking up to me um, from NKU. I didn't know at the time, but then they gave me their card and said, Hey, like, make sure we connect. I can get you in con and connected uh -huh. with Joan. Uh -huh. But then interestingly, my friend received a text message from her guests that they weren't going to be able to make it. So what oh, turned good. into this, like, oh, Ooh, I got a rush. Cause I was like, so conflicted. Like, yes. I don't even know what this opportunity could be. I don't want to miss it, but I also can't stay. Well, we were able to stay. Mm -hmm. And so that is when I did at the end, people could come down and talk to the various panelists and we exchanged information. And as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, that was a pivotal moment for MCRC because we were just getting started. We made our first film and, um, you were just so compelling in the way we talked a little bit after I'll, I'll tell you what I remember you saying to me. Uh, but then you became part of the MCRC project and you're, we consider you the MCRC trauma therapist and you've appeared in several films and you'll probably appear in any film that we ever make if, as long as you want to appear in it. Uh, but it is, I don't know, the trauma of race. Uh, we need a trauma therapist. We need someone who understands trauma to understand how it plays out in the individual head and mind um, to match, you know, the kind of the societal look at, at, and way that we created the racial categories. Um, but I remember in particular something very pivotable, pivotable, pivot, pivotal. <laughs> there we go. I'm like back in, in college. I'm, I'm humiliating myself. <laughs> so anyway, I remember you saying to me, because the, the film ends, it's with a dance. And uh, a black appearing and white appearing people are dancing and the white appearing people are forced to leave the white, the black appearing people so that they can pursue opportunity and leave behind. They have to leave behind. That's how white was created. To pursue opportunity, white needed to leave behind. And that's how the society was structured and set up. And so they're dancing and the black appearing people fall to the floor and the white appearing people, there's three or four dancers all run off separately off stage, not never to talk about it again, that they had left someone behind. And my focus had been on the black appearing people on the ground left behind. And then you said to me, what was really interesting is how the white appearing dancers ran off all by themselves, not together, not holding hands, but l w ran off to never talk about this again. And this was a sorrowful story. There are, of course, callous stories of separation, of separating the white from the black appearing people. But in this sorrowful example, you have people who took with them this sorrow and were too ashamed of themselves to talk about it ever or tell their families about it, who they left behind. Like, for example, my grandfather left behind his sisters. So I never heard the story from him. And when I tried to ask him, how did you get to Kentucky? You were in Louisiana. He goes, I just got on a train with the hobos and came up. I mean, he didn't ever engage with his life. Mm -hmm. with, and, and that is how the white classified 
people, I appear white, learn their history. They learn by no, nothing is said. And that's you. I, I had that in my head, but I didn't know about exploring it till you brought that up. And then it really became a big exploration of the MCRC project. And it's brought up, I mean, we talk about it all the time now. Um, you know, the white appearing, leaving behind um, in so many different ways. Yeah, I love that. And it, yeah, it stuck out to me. I'm glad it was pivotal and impactful. Yes, it was. And in so much of the work. So I, I really appreciate this project um, because it's coming at, so, to, to, so a little bit more about the project in the sense that we're not having conversations per se about these things, but Joan has uh, elicited the expertise and the gifts of students at Northern Kentucky University through all forms of art. So composition in dance, theater, sculpture, poetry, creative writing. That what did I miss? Anything? Uh, we did dance. Uh, yeah, music. Uh, oh, we. I think you hit it all. Yeah, we just yep. through the arts and yes, and it is then telling these compelling stories in ways that bypass the thinking part of the brain. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not using a lot of words for people to move into that very logical left brain analytical part of race and race construction and and how it's impacted. But through melody and through song and through dance and through voice, it kind of has a way of absorbing into you in a way that our intellect can't block. And so through multiple iterations of this, there have been documentaries, and we're able to discuss so much of what we're talking about on the podcast in ways that can appeal to people in ways that just regular conversations often do not. And coming on to the project as the the trauma specialist or trauma specializing consultant, really being able to help people understand the connection between brain and body and, and how, you know, one of my, I have so many awesome moments, but one of my favorite is when we were preparing for the second documentary and working with the dancers and the choreographers, Mm -hmm. because part of it is they were trying to say, okay, it was the Margaret Garner story. If I were Margaret Garner, what might I be feeling or what I've been doing? And it's like, stop, we don't have to really pretend to know what Margaret Garner was feeling. Uh, If you were her, you've had some of the same experiences that she's had. So when you are afraid, what does that feel like? When you are, you know, determined to do some, what is that? And being able to help them truly tap into their own human experience to be able to bring forth movement that could Mm -hmm. demonstrate to um, someone watching this experience. And it was so powerful, so amazingly powerful. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that, that's the project. So Joan, tell us a little bit about what, what's the goal? What's the goal or the hope for the impact of MCRC? Well, I think that our country has not engaged at all with how the racial categories were formed. And when I think of some of the most powerful books that are out right now, I think Cast and How to Be an Anti-Racist, and there's just a number of books, you know, White Fragility, for example. 
I really don't think the average reader who is not paid like I am to keep up with topics, you know, I'm paid, that's my job. So the average reader, I think the books would make it kind of an impact, but without understanding how race was formed, I don't, I don't see the books making the impact they could make. We just bypass, our country just bypasses the story of categories and acts like, well, they just are, and they always will be, and they're biological, and they're in our bodies. And as long as our country does that, as long as most people believe that, they're not going to understand racism. The ultimate sin is, is separation of people who loved and cared for each other. And then after the separation was made, the things people did to keep the separation in place from them. And we know the most callous of ways to do that. But originally we had to separate, not when I say we had to, I mean the laws and the privileged classes who needed the division, who didn't want white and black appearing people to get along because it would dilute their power. Once that system, once that system was created, it took a life of its own, and our country has not recovered from that yet. But if we don't know how the divide was made, we are not really going to understand implicit bias. We're not going to understand anti-racism. We're not going to understand how we're a caste system. I just feel we're, this is the missing piece to our country's discussion of race. And that's what my hope is that once people understand and appreciate and mourn, then I think our country's ready to think more deeply about race and its impact. To know how this was done and then see its impact, I I just think that is what's necessary for full like movement forward. We're we're just stu- we're stuck without talking about this, you know. And it is hard to get, you know, into the, the say the national discussion. I think we're getting close actually mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. But because people, everyone's coming at it like black and white just exist. Indian just exists, you know. And as long as that's the way, that's the basic assumption. We're not going to move forward. That's how I feel about it. I I can feel the passion you have for that. And I feel so similarly when it comes to us having any, really any conversation without talking about trauma Uh (laughs) or, or to put it more plainly in order to understand what's coming out of something, you have to understand what went into something. Yes. And so for me, that's my driving force. We have to understand what has gone into a person to truly have an understanding of what's coming out of them. So you, you, that's my, that's my micro, right? My individual mm-hmm. lens, but you take mm-hmm. that out 30,000 feet in the same thing. You can't truly begin to understand what's coming out of this country until you understand what's gone into it. Mm-hmm. And by understanding the what and the why and the how, like you said, we equip ourselves with, with the ability to move forward. But now it's, it's what I tell clients all the time. Change is not the first step. So many people come to me and I want, they want to change something. They want to Mm -hmm. stop doing something or start doing something. And I, I, I respect that. And I want to walk that journey with them, but I tell them the action is not the first step. If we don't understand what need 
this thing was meeting, where it came from, how it got there, and then figure out how to meet that need in a different way, then you can actively diet, exercise, stop smoking, do all these things. It's going to come back because you haven't addressed its root and its foundation. And so like you, I believe that the Morning the Creations of Racial Category Project is providing us with a foundation. It's mm-hmm. not trying to jump ahead to the, we got to make change. Yes, change is necessary. And I, I hear people saying like, we've waited long enough and, and change, we need change now. And I don't disagree with that. I just know that sustained change, sustained change has to come when we realize that we got to understand the foundation and create mm-hmm. a foundation. And this project really, really does that. Um, can you talk a little bit, cause this has always been so fascinating, uh, to me. I don't think I can hear it enough. We talk about categories and there is this assumption that it's just black and white, mm-hmm. but you have done extensive research and you have classified or identified these various classifications in the role that the classifications have played in the history of our country. Can you just talk a little bit about that to give people just a little bit of an idea of what you mean by categories? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, our country recognizes, uh, officially recognizes, and you have to think of this in a legal sense, uh, five racial categories and one ethnic category. The ethnic category is Hispanic. That I'm using the language now of the, the legal term. So there are more up-to-date ways of referring to the racial categories, labels to them, but I'm going to use the labels that our country legally uses. Black and white is the most fundamental division in the country uh, of all the racial categories. They, they were created as opposites. All right, The other racial categories had to find their way between black and white, and they were formed you know, in, in relative to thinking about black and white in our country. So we're actually getting ready to start, uh, like, I guess this is our fourth creative team that we're calling into place where we're going to look at the other racial categories and we're going to explore their place between black and white. Now, uh, each, well, we've done also like hundreds of interviews with people who identify with each of the categories and what we've learned is that no person, no matter if it's white appearing, black appearing, Native American appearing, Hispanic appearing, is comfortable with their category. They all wrestle with it. But what we found out is that they wrestle with it in a kind of a thematic way. So if you look at people classified as black, there's always a theme of abandonment that comes up somewhere in their story. And the white cat classified there's always some abandoning kind of that they abandoned something they don't they don't put it in frames of i abandoned it to become white but there's just something that from their past family lost and they've never discussed it that's always there in the native american category there's always there we have not been erased you think you've erased us but we have not So what I'm trying to show with these three examples is that it's fascinating in the interview, those themes come up. And they come up in all kinds of different ways. And that's what makes us unique. But the theme is there. Uh, So uh, that's the kind of thing we're exploring right now. And then once we know those themes, 
it, it might become easier to include others in the conversation. But right now, it just the other categories kind of watch black and white. And they're, they, I think they understand the idea that white has a more, uh, our country set it up as being more appealing as the thing you want to be in the way that it, you know, idealized whiteness. And black, well, it's the category of enslavement. It, that way they were enslaved for 235 years. We often don't think about that in our country. We would think slavery, that people stop and go, oh, that was 235 years long, that whole history. We don't think like that. And so when you think that's the black category, they became the enslaved. And that was an 80-year process, by the way, to get black as the enslaved category. What category is going to gravitate toward black they're going to gravitate toward white so the white category and what white category has so we can we explore those things about the other categories and how they're caught between the two uh, and i think we're we're just forming our team now and i i'm really excited for the you know what we will make of this what the students and faculty and we're moving beyond nku students and faculty to beyond the, our community, what will these artists, how will they tell that story? Through dance, through creative writing, poetry. So that's just a little look into it. And it's, of course, we can be here for hours. Hours. <laughs> we can be here for years <laughs> talking about this. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Just kind of that overview. Um, because I, I do believe, and I have felt since, um, I became a part of this team working with this project that this is a a national conversation and Mm -hmm. that we are laying solid foundation to be able to lead people in having these conversations in building awareness in reflection and exploration, deep exploration and reflection so that we can have sustained change in very meaningful ways. And so I, I'm so honored to be a part of the project. Um, I think a few things I want to point out to my listeners just about how I got into the project, um, because I think it's helpful. One, I was at this event, right? Uh, sometimes you just never know why you're going to something. Like, I, I really am so glad that I went despite, you know, obstacles and weather and bleh, I went. But another thing is I, I didn't set out to do something extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think that's what people are thinking. How, how can I just do this extraordinary thing? How can I be impactful? Literally, I was just being myself. And I did that. And it was something about the genuine me that Joan saw from across a big auditorium Mm -hmm. that called to her. And so I I want that to be encouraging to somebody. Go, that's step one, just go. Go to these places, explore new things, get curious, and then just be yourself. Mm -hmm. And then as I came into the project, at some points I would get nervous. Like, oh, okay, so what am I supposed to do? You know, because that was in December. And I think like January 5th, Mm-hmm. Yes, that's I was right. doing a work, you know, I was yes. coming into the space. So I'm not talking about a lot of turnaround <laughs> time and how I would get in my head and be like, I'm excited and I want to, but who, what am I doing? And I don't know, just be yourself. 
And I was mm -hmm. able to go and bring the lens through which I came with an understanding that it's not the only lens, but it is a lens. And, and so my contributions now have just been Shonda shows up. And I mm -hmm. say this time and time again, I wake up, I live my life and people pay me to do it. Mm -hmm. I never knew that was actually a thing, but I'm telling uh -huh. you, it is a thing. And when I realized that I'm not only there to contribute, but to receive, I have learned so much. Oh my goodness. I've learned so much by being a part of this process and this project that it is so mutually enhancing. It's so reciprocal. And those things are super important. Um, I also want to say that then people will speak into you. So Joan has, was the first person to say this to me, but so interestingly, not the last, Joan would call me the nation's therapist. Yes. right. <laughs> and I remember yes. the first time she said it, it was like, oh, okay. You know, uh -huh. being complimentary, right? <laughs> yes. But she kept saying it. And, and what it did was it, it sparked this thing in me that it's true, that, that, that is it, right? To be able mm -hmm. to hold the space that I can hold for people who fall in so many different categories and places in their lives and be able to bring a universal healing to those people, that's unique. And I will mm -hmm. own that. And our nation mm -hmm. needs it. And my point of bringing that up though, is I wouldn't, I don't think I would have come to that conclusion myself. It was when you are collaborating with other people who can truly see you in your gifting and what you contribute and appreciate it, um, that means so much. And now what I also say about Joan is from the very beginning, Joan respected me and my gift, so she paid me. And I think that's important because sometimes people think they have to go into this sacrificial, I have to give all of myself to prove that my gift is worthy, and you don't. Because mm -hmm. those who truly value it will show you their value of mm -hmm. it um, by not trying to ask you to labor for free. <laughs> so yes. that is that is just very important. You pay your student like I everyone gets paid. So I'm not just saying that from like me as the therapist mm -hmm. on the project. Joan appreciates the contributions of everyone and she makes sure that they're compensated. Can you just talk to us a little bit about how you select? the people who are involved and, and what does that look like? Well, we do a call for participation unless I find somebody of interest at a, an event like I did, <laughs> like I found you, <laughs> but, and I have found people that way, not many. It's, it's, it's less than a handful of people that I've just been out and they've said something profound to me. And, and uh, you know, then it's, the relationship has grown from there. But generally, we do it with a call to, for participation. And um, sometimes, you know, 40, 50 people will answer the call. And then we'll select maybe 20, 25 to come to the workshop. And then from there, go down to 11 or 12 as a core team. But each um, film that we've made has probably involved 90 people or so altogether. So um, what's, what, what I remember most, what I think most about this when I think about the teams Generally, every person, if they were absent or something happened to them, what we have would fall apart. In other words, we'd have to find a way to rebuild because every person plays such an integral role in making the product that we end up with. And I, we think of, I can't tell you the number of times 
I've talked to someone who knows LaShonda and I've said, what would MCRC look like without LaShonda? <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times when we've said that. And, and I can say that about my team in general, that what would, you know, without Emmanuel Picasso, what would the dance look like in the first, he was the chore- choreographer for, for that piece. You know, what would Let Our Loss Be Heard look like without Jason Vest, the tenor, who sang, um, repurposed the song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord, to Were You There When She, when she Slashed the Baby's Neck. Mm-hmm. Um, we, w- what would it have looked like without them? And that's what I think the greatest pleasure of all this is, is the, you know, just how, how selfless everyone is for an idea. Yeah. And how much people then reflects back on them and, and the power of purpose, you know, to an idea. I think we all need to experience that. Be part of a team, realize that you're integral to that team. And the purpose is so large that you want everybody to succeed. That's a rare thing in the country we call the United States. Yes, it is. You know, even listening to you describe it, I'm like, mm, that that's that unicorn <laughs> that yes. that you don't see very often. And it's so true to be able to yes. come together with no one person trying to say this is mine or, I, you know, when the collective can say this would be different without you not mm-hmm. the one person. It it, it, yes. it honestly reminds me of one of my favorite movies, which is um, The Temptations. Mm-hmm. And when he's like, you know, ain't nobody coming to see you, Otis. The Temptations without <laughs> David Ruffin ain't nothing but a group in search of a David Ruffin. You know, uh-huh. that's not the vibe we got here, folks. <laughs> yes. You know, you know, that we do the, the collaborative um, contributions and creativity mm-hmm. in this project blows my mind it was evident when I watched the first documentary which I was not a part of right that's Mm -hmm. how I come to it but now being on the other side of it it is just so amazing and so um I definitely will have information in the show notes about the morning creations of racial category project for sure I want to pivot slightly because going back to your labor of love of taking these kind of complex ideas and making them accessible and digestible, I want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, the most recent book mm-hmm. that, okay. uh, that you curated, if that's a, a good yes, word a for good it. Word. So uh-huh. talk to us about this book. Uh, the book is titled How to Respond in a Pandemic, 25 Ideas from 25 Disciplines of Study. And it was written and put together rather quickly in March of, of um, March 16th of 20, this year, 2020. And uh, I made a call for people in different disciplines to write a three to five page essay saying what their discipline contrib- contributes to our understanding of the pandemic and our response to the pandemic. And uh, 25 people came together and we created it in a pretty unique way because we had a, what we called reader advocates uh, panel and everything that was written by the experts had to go by the reader advocates who were uh, students uh, and others and anything we didn't understand uh, that we needed more help with, we needed a better example, uh, the author took that into consideration and, and 
took it and embraced it as part of the essay that they contributed. Now the author, in all cases, contributed an idea that we, I could never have thought of myself. I didn't know the discipline thought in these terms and that would guide a response. So that was the pivotal idea. Uh, but then how the author carried that idea out sometimes was not understandable to readers. Even you could say PhDs and other disciplines couldn't understand what the author was saying uh, completely. So uh, what we did then was make it accessible and make it readable. And all the essays look like they came from, you know, a common purpose and goal. And uh, so that's the the story of the book. And uh, again, what I come away with after projects like this uh, is the idea that writing alone should be outlawed. Mm -hmm. No one should ever write alone because you're writing for yourself. (laughs) And why would you, why would you want to write just for yourself? You want to write for an audience to understand you. Now, I will say that being in part of academia, and I am a PhD, uh, clarity does not get you a lot of points mm-hmm. in the academic world. It just doesn't. I wish it did. Uh, and I, I, clarity, I guess that means that when you're clear, others can understand, and then that makes you feel like you don't have enough power over knowledge or something. Mm-hmm. So I've been perplexed by that, but I'm not willing to give that up. I, I would rather go toward the masses and being un, than, than toward talking to experts. And um, I won't say that gets me a lot of points, there, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm making headway. You know, I think, I think we're, people are starting to understand, you know, that's ultimately if you're an educator, you, you want feedback. You want to write for others, not just yourself and your discipline. So thank you so much for sharing that. Now, I want to share the other side of that as the non-curator, right? So I started off as a reader advocate for, uh-huh. for this project. And it, yeah, I'm reading uh, these various essays and, um, you know, I'm asked, does this make sense? Do you understand it? what parts are very clear, what parts are not clear. And I'm going through and, you know, I'm doing that. And um, I, I think it was music. I believe it was when I read the essay on music. I felt so compelled <laughs> reading this essay that I emailed Joan and said, can I contribute? <laughs> like, I, I want to contribute. It, it, inspired me to contribute so uh she graciously said yes and and can i stop you there a second Uh i asked you to contribute you said i'm so busy yes it's true (laughs) and then you came back and said can i contribute and i said yes yes, fair point fair point (laughs) i was asked to contribute and it was it was just like oh i just don't know if i you know i didn't i don't know if i had the capacity so that's another lesson right i thought my capacity was one thing but i was so encouraged and compelled by another person's um, contribution that it made me say, find capacity. And so Mm -hmm. when I was able to do that, and so I write, you know, what does trauma therapy say about the pandemic and and how we can respond? And I wrote it and, you know, I, I had people read it. Of course, who did I have read it? My husband who loves me and there is no wrong I can do y'all. 
Uh-huh. I look beautiful in everything I wear. <laughs> Every hairstyle I have is beautiful, right? And so I love that. Uh-huh. Um, so that's the feedback I get from there. It's great. I asked some of my other therapists, friends to read it. And I, I got it, right, Joan? Solid mm-hmm. gold. Turn it in. And this process, and if you, if you listen to the podcast episode I did with India Hackle, when we talk about writing, we talk about it a little bit too. I get this thing back. And like, when I say my, my ego took a couple rib shots and bruises, because what I was clear, clearly, right, Joe, when I sent you that paper, it was as clear as it could get. What do you mean? But I loved, and so I had to take a minute and it wasn't me. It was my littles. It was my, my inner children who were like, we did it wrong. And that's not it. I so appreciate that there were a group of people who went line by line. This is no joke. They didn't just skim over it line by line to say, does this make sense to the, to whomever, to the average reader? Does this make sense? Is this example the best example? Is this structure of it the best? And once I had some distance and I, you know, we went back and forth a couple of times and then I read it, I was able to say, this is my idea. They didn't take away my idea. But then I read it and I'm like, that makes so much sense. <laughs> I could, I could read this to my 11 year old child and he would have some understanding of what was being said. I couldn't say that for the first iteration that I had turned in. So I think the process is revolutionary. The fact that you're saying people should not write alone, man, you're, I, there are so many things we shouldn't do alone, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but That's right. writing is definitely one of them. So overall, what was your experience like kind of curating? The, and it, it went fast. We did this very quickly because it is now out and, mm-hmm. and ready. Um, who, were, who was the intended audience? If you can share that with us. What, what do we want the book to do? And what was your overall experience throughout the whole process? Well, I was very pleased to say that the 25 authors were incredibly cooperative with the system. And I I would write back and I would write and say, now we're going to go through this line by line. It's going to change. You may not recognize it. Now's your time to drop out. And people people didn't drop out, which was really good. I say like 15 pairs of eyes looked at each piece. I mean, word for word, line by line. And we put it together, everyone's comments and ideas into one piece and sent it back to the author. And then the author looked at it and said, I need this changed or that changed. I mean, it's a, it's a joyous process and uh, everyone should go through it and have people care about their writing and, or, or whatever they're creating in the way that we cared about the authors. Never once did we think, oh, the author's stupid or we never want or can't write. You need to write 10, 12 times a piece for it to make sense to anybody, even to yourself. You need that. So uh, that was, to me, it was a very joyous process to go through that, to see the authors care that they wanted others to understand their writing. And making it understandable does not mean dumbing it down. No. That's what we often do. We go, oh, we've got to make it dumb. No, we don't. You just make it readable. You, you listen to what people need to hear something. And because 11-year-old can read it doesn't mean it's, it's not worth reading, no. you know? So, so I think that's the the joy was the main, you know, outcome for me about it. But then we have tested it on classes. We have a health innovation grant at NKU and students are reading it and then saying how the book has helped them assess their response to the pandemic and then reassess how they'll respond from here on out. 
And we have an essay contest going on at the NKU, which we're going to share the essays then with other students. But I, even I was taken aback by how much these essays meant to students and reading them and any person reading them. But one I can share with you, it's kind of short. Uh, this one student was working at Kroger and he just really was down in the dumps. Uh, but then he read the essay from the anthropologist on connecting with food and food systems. And when food systems collapse, what that means for a culture. And he realized he was part of keeping a food system together mm. and cultures together. And it changed his whole outlook on going to work. And I wasn't prepared for that kind of reaction that I would, you would reassess your role, you know, as a lowly, I had that in quotes, a mm -hmm. lowly worker at Kroger, all of a sudden seeing yourself as part of a food system that needs to survive in a pandemic. Uh, so so we, we're in the process now of getting the essays in and evaluating them and pick selecting them. So I would say that just that one example made it worth it for me yeah. to do this project. And I, I think we're going to see lots more examples as we read the essays that students write after reading this book. So fascinating. Um, I, I just genuinely appreciate your collectivist approach to making an impact on the world. Um, I, I definitely um, know you've impacted my individual world, but I also know that you're impacting the greater world in how you bring so many other people into the fold in order to be able to be a part of that contribution. And that, that, that's a unicorn in and of itself as well. And so I have such gratitude uh, for you, you know, for you hearing whatever it was in that question. You know, we talk about almost every time we film, yes. we come back to say, I'm glad I asked that question <laughs> yes. and, and how we were able to connect in that way. And that, you know, we can both continue to make so many contributions in this world. I'm super excited mm -hmm. to know you and be connected to you. So well, as we, one last oh, thing I'll oh, say, yeah. India, India Hackle, you did the, India Seda Hackle, we, you did a podcast with her. We often go through, you know, all the tapes, the hours and hours of tapes. And when Shonda comes up, we go, we'll listen to her and go, that's not fair that you be at, someone's able to present the ideas that well. So, or we'll be in an event and we'll go, we need LaShonda here, you know, to help explain this. So, That's so awesome. So I, it's, you come up more than you would know in conversation. Uh, I mean, it's, it's daily or weekly really <laughs> when we're working on something. I love it. I appreciate it. Um, what I was saying before is, you know, not only do I have gratitude for being a part of the project, but I have gratitude for the friendships and the relationships that I've been able to develop with you in yes. India. And so it's been so great. So Joan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out. Um, to be with me, to have this conversation. I'm so glad I could introduce my listeners to you and the MCRC project. Um, if people were intrigued, if they want to know more about MCRC or they want to contact or get in touch with you specifically, how can they do that? Well, they can just uh, go to the mcrcproject.org and it's just as it sounds, the mcrcproject.org and you'll see, you can email me from there. And you know, it's uh, my Ferrante J at NKU. Uh, 
So if you know my name, just the last name J at nku.edu. And I'm happy to communicate with anybody that yes. loves collaboration. Yes. And I, I'm excited because we are, we are taking this thing national and that is going to be so exciting. So thank you, Joan, so much. Thank I, you. I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides all of the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sugg of Instant Classic Media, and as always to you, my listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you'd like to get in touch with me, if you have suggestions for content or guests, please reach out at www.thelaborsoflove.com. We're on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget our YouTube channel where every week we have our Therapy Thursday videos. And of course, don't forget to give that five-star rating, leave a review, and share the podcast. Until we connect again, you all be well. <laughs>